Heavenly Father, thank you for being here with us. Thank you for your word. Lord, would you just guide me in, in what to say? That your truth would come out and it would transform. Not just my words, just not, not just my thoughts, but your words, Father. That your goodness, that your glory would shine through. And speak into our lives. Speak into our stories. That we would know you're with us. And we thank you for that. Amen. So the story of Genesis, it's, it, it portrays, it shows, it, it introduces us to this God who created the universe. This good God who created this universe. He created this wonderful garden called the Garden of Eden. And he put people there. The first two people, Adam and Eve, were there. And they lived with God. They spoke with God. They walked with God. And the relationship was very good. But there's one rule, that they were not to eat of this particular fruit from this tree in the center of the garden. And how typical it is of us, if somebody tells you not to do something, you go and do it. But the consequences were extreme, the consequences were deadly. And that disobedience from the first people, from Adam eating that fruit, has cursed the world. It separated us from God. It separated us from each other. It separated us from ourselves. And we see it around us. We don't need a science background or any amount of knowledge to know that something is wrong. The world around us, something is broken. And the reason for that, the genesis of that moment was right there in the garden. This is the story of our hearts. This is the human history. This is the story of this amazing God that despite this rebellion, we see the goodness of God displayed in Genesis as he's restoring humanity, as he's bringing about his unstoppable goal of reversing the curse. And Genesis, as it plays out, we read about God's relationship with the world and then with particular people throughout the generations. And each generation, they continue to rebel. They kill each other. They lie to each other. They rape each other. They steal from each other. And we see its effects still today. But God is still on this path, pursuing his people, wanting to reverse the curse to make the world the way it was supposed to be. And so in Genesis 31 and 32, it shows us that God is with his people as he pours out his grace through their weakness, through their brokenness, in order to comfort them in adversity and affliction. Are you here this afternoon needing comfort and from affliction? Are you in pain? Are you suffering? God is saying, I'm, I'm with you. I'm here. Come to me. I have a background in early childhood education. And a lot of what we learn about, we learn through monkeys. So we watch a lot of monkey videos if you're an early childhood educator. Because monkeys are, they act like us. I don't think they're, we are evolved from monkeys, but they have a similar brain pattern. And so there's this experiment where... 
they have this baby monkey and their mom. And then there's this, this little room, little box full of toys, like little balls, little cones, and little things to touch and feel. And, and when the monkey is with the mom, the monkey will play fine with the toys. As soon as you remove the mom from the room, the monkey does not play. Freaks out, is scared, wants to go to the door, scratch on it. Much like my own kids when I drop them off in this class right here. These little monkeys, there's this comfort knowing that their mom is with them. As soon as you remove that presence, the comfort, the confidence, it, it seems like it's gone. Yet this is a really base metaphor. How much more comfort and peace and joy and confidence would we have in knowing that the God of the universe is with us? Amidst our affliction, amidst our fear, how much more? And God is indeed with us. That's what I'm trying to say to you this afternoon. That's what I'm trying to say to my own heart, that God is with us. So Genesis 31, verse 1. Here we go. But Jacob soon learned that Laban's sons were grumbling about him. Jacob has robbed our father of everything, they said. He has gained all his wealth at our father's expense. And Jacob began to notice a change in Laban's attitude toward him. The story of Genesis is this good God who's created this world and the world continues to rebel. And as we go to our next slide here, we'll see that the spiraling of each generation continues. And then God makes his promise in chapter 12. Chapter 12 is how you understand this entire book. It's called a hinge chapter. God speaks to a man named Abraham. And he says, I'm going to make your descendants as numerous as the stars. And through you, a king will come. And through you, I will reverse the curse. And so we meet Abraham. And then his family, and the next generation after generation. And then now we're reading about one of Abraham's descendants, Jacob. This is who Jacob is. And Laban is his father-in-law. So that's who we're introduced to in uh, chapters, I believe, 27 and 28. And we're picking up the story here. And Jacob, he's, he's actually run away from his, his former land because he stole something called a birthright from his brother as well as a blessing. And we'll learn a little bit about that later. But he's, but he's on the run, and now he's picked up some, some wives. Three of them, exact, uh, to be exact. And uh, we're picking up the story and where he's going. So verse 3. Then the Lord said to Jacob, Return to the land of your father and grandfather and to your relatives there, and I will be with you. So Jacob called Rachel and Leah, out to the field where he was watching his flock. Rachel and Leah are his wives. He said to them, I have noticed that your father's attitude toward me has changed. But the God of my father has been with me. You know how hard I worked for your father. But he has cheated me, changing my wages ten times. But God has not allowed him to do me any harm. For if he said the speckled animals will be your wages, the whole flock began to produce speckled young. 
And when he changed his mind and said, the striped animals will be your wages, then the whole flock produced striped young. In this way, God has taken your father's animals and has given them to me. So now if you're just getting launched in this series right now, this sounds kind of confusing. But as, he's, as, as Jacob is leaving his father-in-law's farm and property, Jacob asks his father-in-law, when can I start working for my own family? Because right now he's working for Laban. And so he, they come to this agreement where, okay, the certain, your flock, if they have a certain stripe or speckle or spot, um, I'll take them and everything that doesn't look like that, you keep. So that was the agreement. But then they all ended up being speckled, spotted, and striped. So he took the whole flock. Verse 10, one time during the mating season, I had a dream and saw that the male goats mating with the females were streaked, speckled, and spotted. Then in my dream, the angel of God said to me, Jacob. And I replied, yes, here I am. The angel said, look up, and you will see that the only streaked, speckled, and spotted males are mating with the females of your flock. For I've seen how Laban has treated you. I'm the God who appeared to you at Bethel, the place where you anointed the pillar of stone and made your vow to me. Now get ready and leave this country and return to the land of your birth. Rachel and Leah responded, That's fine with us. We won't inherit any of our father's wealth anyways. He has reduced our rights to those of foreign women. And after he sold us, he wasted the money you paid him for us. All the wealth God has given you from our father legally belongs to us and our children. So go ahead and do whatever God has told you. So Jacob put his wives and children on camels. And he drove all his livestock in front of him. He packed all the belongings he had acquired in Paramaran and set out for the land of Canaan, where his father Isaac lived. At this point in Genesis, we're focusing on this guy Jacob. And when we kind of first met him, he was a, he was a deceiver. He deceived his brother. And his name Jacob actually means to deceive in Hebrew. But here now, we're seeing some, some progress in his, in his life, in his faith with God. We're seeing some spiritual progress. We read that he's faithful to God, and he's obedient to him, and he, he doesn't waver. He's starting to become honest. And he even argues his integrity, rightly so, with his father-in-law. And instead of being self-centered, he's now God-centered. Instead of being self-centered, he's now God-centered, and gives God all of the credit. We continue in verse 19. At the time they left, Laban was some distance away shearing the sheep. Rachel stole her father's household idols, so these little statues, and took them with her. Jacob outwitted Laban the Aramean, for they set out secretly and never told Laban they were leaving. So Jacob took all his possessions with him and crossed the Euphrates River, heading for the hill country of Gilead. So Jacob has quite a has quite a large cattle. He has a lot of people under his care, and he now leaves with Laban's daughters and, and, and daughters' slaves, and they're going to a new country. And they they just left. They're, they're kind of escaping. But how did Jacob get away? How could, he just, how could he just leave, like, taking the daughters and, and then nobody noticed a thing? Well, a, a part of the clue is, in verse 19, it says, Laban was shearing his sheep. Now, I don't know if you've ever seen a sheep or know what a sheep is, and, 
If, <laughs> of course you know what sheep is. What am I talking about? <laughs> but he's, he's shearing the sheep for whatever, clothing, furniture, whatever it is. They're shearing the sheep, whether it's for the new coat or whatever it is. But it wasn't just like they have one sheep. And Laban was just there shearing the sheep. He's like, oh, I'm so busy. I didn't notice that everyone left. Like shearing, like you have a huge flock of sheep back in this time. Laban had a huge flock of sheep. And when you're shearing sheep, you need like, you need a bunch of people doing that for sometimes days. There's actually an archaeological finding in, um, they call them these tablets. And one of the tablets said that the sheep shearing took 400 days. So it wasn't just like grab, grab your clippers and zzz, like you're done, little bo peep. It was a huge ordeal. And so that's how they left because everyone was busy during this time. It was like a time of harvest. Everyone's involved, the families, everything. And that's how they got away. So this was a typical springtime activity that required a bunch of people and a bunch of sheep. So verse 22. Three days later, Laban was told that Jacob had fled. So he gathered a group of his relatives and set out in hot pursuit. He caught up with Jacob seven days later in the hill country of Gilead. But the previous night, God had appeared to Laban the Aramean in a dream and told him, I'm warning you, leave Jacob alone. Laban caught up with Jacob as he was camped in the hill country of Gilead, and he set up his camp not far from Jacob's. What do you mean by deceiving me like this? Laban demanded. How dare you drag my daughters away like prisoners of war? Why did you slip away secretly? Why did you deceive me? And why didn't you say you wanted to leave? I would have given you a farewell feast with singing and music, accompanied by tambourines and harps. Why didn't you let me kiss my daughters and grandchildren, tell them goodbye? You've acted very foolishly. I could destroy you, but the God of your father appeared to me last night and warned me, leave Jacob alone. I can understand your feeling that you must go and your intense longing for your father's home. But why have you stolen my gods? So here Laban's acknowledging that God has spoken to him. But he refuses to acknowledge God as his own. He has his own gods. In verse 30, why have you stolen my gods? These gods were more than just little statues, these idols as Genesis describes it. These little idols, they served as uh, title ownership of property and inheritance. So if you had one of these idols, it was like, it was like the, the deed to your land. It was like the title to your home. So these were more than just little statues. And it was a big deal that they were missing. So Jacob responds in verse 31, I rushed away because I was afraid. Jacob answered, I thought you would take your daughters from me by force. But as for your gods, see if you can find them and let the person who has taken them die. And if you find anything else that belongs to you, identify it before all the relatives of ours, these relatives of ours, and I will give it back. But Jacob did not know that Rachel had stolen the household idols. Laban went first to Jacob's tent to search there, then into Leah's, and then the tents of the two servants' wives, but he found nothing finally went into Rachel's tent. But Rachel had taken the household idols and hidden them in her camel's saddle. And now she was sitting on them. When Laban had thoroughly searched her tent without finding them, she said to her father, Please, sir, forgive me if I don't get up for you 
I'm having my monthly period. So Laban continued his search, but he could not find the household idols. So Laban's hunted Jacob down and is looking for these idols, these little statues. He's like, where are they? He's looking in this tent and that tent. He's searching around frantically. And Jacob's like, if you find what you're looking for, may the person who stole them die. That's how serious I'm taking this, because I guarantee you, nobody has taken your idols. But Laban's looking for them. He's not finding anything. And Jacob doesn't realize that Rachel took it. And she hid them in the camel's saddle. And as he's searching, he's maybe approaching the saddle. And Rachel, what does she say? Please forgive me if I don't get up from having my period. Now this is strange. What is happening here? The reason Laban never suspected that Rachel was sitting on these idols in what they believed were gods is because he couldn't imagine that she would have this outrageous disrespect for these idols. Because back then, when women were having their periods, they were considered to be in a state of uncleanliness. And therefore, they were contaminating. They can contaminate others. But her actions show her utter disdain for her father's idols. And she essentially treated the idols and the property and his title and his deed with worthlessness and uncleanliness. So Laban's frantically looking for his stuff and he can't find it. There's no evidence that theft had occurred and Jacob is furious. Verse 36. Then Jacob became very angry and he challenged Laban. What is my crime? He demanded. What have I done wrong to make you chase after me as though I were a criminal? You have rummaged through everything I own. Now show me what you found that belongs to you. Set it out here in front of us before our relatives for all to see. Let them judge between us. For 20 years I have been with you, caring for your flocks, and all that time your sheep and goats never miscarried. In all those years, I never used a single ram of yours for food. If any were attacked and killed by wild animals, I never showed you the carcass and asked you to reduce the count of your flock. No, I took the loss myself. You made me pay for every stolen animal, whether it was taken in broad daylight or in the dark of night. I worked for you through the scorching heat of the day and through cold and sleepless nights. Yes, for 20 years I slaved in your house. I worked for 14 years earning your two daughters and then six more years for your flock and you changed my wages 10 times. You know what this is called? A tongue lashing. Jacob is furious. It's like all the pent-up anger he's had over the 20 years of working for his father-in-law came out in this very moment. I'm going to tell you what's on my mind, Laban. Now, this isn't always a good idea. You just unleash on people. But, but you've got you to sympathize with what's going on here. The first encounter Jacob has with Laban's family, they meet in this, this, this land, and he sees Rachel. She's so beautiful, so beautiful. He wants to marry her. And he says, I'm willing to work for you for seven years for your daughter. 
seven years. And when the time came, Laban switched Rachel with Leah in the wedding bed, and Laban tricked Jacob. And he says, okay, work for me for another seven years, and you can have Rachel. And he's just, he's just mistreating Jacob. Six more years he had to work for the, for the flock. He's frustrated and he's angry. But his anger is, is balanced with his trust that God is with him. Verse 42. In fact, if the God of my father had not been by my side, the God of Abraham and the fearsome God of Isaac, you would have sent me away empty-handed. But God has seen your abuse in my hard work. That is why he appeared to you last night and rebuked you. And so despite Jacob's anger, he continues to give credit to God. He's recognizing that God is with him and taking care of him. Jacob didn't give credit to his own deceitfulness, his intelligence, or his hard work. He's giving the credit to God. It was God's grace that protected Jacob. And Jacob was confident that God was with him. So if you're a believer here, the challenge is to have confidence. Confidence in God despite people mistreating us. Because people will mistreat you. People will mistreat us. But we have confidence in God that he is with us despite the mistreatment. Now, I'm not saying be a doormat, dear Christian. That's not what I'm saying. We should defend our rights. But it doesn't have to be in anger. It doesn't have to be malicious or vindictive or revenge-filled. But we are confident that God is working in in and amongst our brokenness. Despite how people treat us, what they say to us, that God is with us. And He will give the judgment, and he will do as he pleases. That is a hard, hard thing to do. We don't live in a country where we die for our faith. We don't live in a country where we bleed for what we believe in. We may be mocked at work. We may be mocked in the home. And I'm not minimizing that in our lives. So we're not to be a doormat, nor am I saying that we should be Christian referees, blowing our whistle at every given moment. What I mean by Christian referee is every time you see something wrong, you you blow your whistle. It's just annoying. We shouldn't do that. But we are to have confidence in God that he is with us. Despite when people mistreat us. Because people will mistreat you. And it will seem not fair. And it probably isn't fair. We will mistreat others. But God is with us, and he's working his good plan and purposes through all of this. So Jacob has his confidence. And then he makes this promise. Laban and Jacob make this promise together. We continue in verse 43. Then Laban replied to Jacob, These women are my daughters, these children are my grandchildren, and these flocks are my flocks. In fact, everything you see is mine. But what can I do with now about my daughters and, and their children? So come, let's make a covenant, you and I, and it will be a witness to our commitment. So Jacob took a stone and set it up as a monument. Then he told his family members, gather some stones. So they gathered stones and piled them in a heap. 
Then Jacob and Laban sat down beside the pile of stones to eat a covenant meal to commemorate the event. Laban called the place Jagar Zadutha, which means witness pile in Aramaic. And Jacob called it Galid, which means witness pile in Hebrew. Then Laban declared, this pile of stones will stand as a witness to remind us of the covenant we've made today. This explains why it was called Galid, witness pile. But it was also called Mizpah, which means watchtower. For Laban said, may the Lord keep watch between us to make sure that we keep this covenant when we are out of each other's sight. If you mistreat my daughters, or if you marry other wives, God will see it even if no one else does. He is a witness to this covenant between us. See this pile of stones, Laban continued, and see this monument I have set between us. They stand between us as witnesses of our vows. I will never pass this pile of stones to harm you, and you must never pass these stones or this monument to harm me. I call on the God of our ancestors, the God of your grandfather Abraham, and the God of my grandfather Nahor, to serve as a judge between us. So Jacob took an oath before the fearsome God of his father Isaac to respect the boundary line. Then Jacob offered a sacrifice to God there in the monument and invited everyone to a covenant feast. After they had eaten, they spent the night on the mountain. Laban got up early the next morning and he kissed his grandmother and his daughters and blessed them. Then he left and returned home. Now we're to chapter 32. As Jacob started on his way again, angels of God came to meet him. When Jacob saw them, he exclaimed, This is God's camp. So he named the place Mahanaim. So this is, once again, Jacob has this encounter with angels. And maybe you've had something like that happen to you. But at this time, with Jacob, this is a source of encouragement that God is with him. That God sends his angels to protect. Now, I don't, I don't know what these angels look like. Look like. I'm, not, I'm not here to describe what an angel is. I think it's quite mysterious. It could be... It could, be a, it could be a lot of things, but it's not necessarily what we see on TV, these giant, like, huge people with giant butterfly wings that glow like the sun. But he encountered an angel, nevertheless. And he was encouraged by it. He was encouraged by it because it showed that God was with him. This is important that this encouragement is happening because Jacob is about to face the greatest trial of his life He's about to meet again his estranged brother Esau who wants to kill him. Esau wants to kill Jacob. The reason Jacob ran away is because Jacob's mom said, listen, your brother wants to kill you because you stole his birthright, which gives him the, the privileges and the honor and the prestige of the firstborn son, and you stole his blessing. So this blessing, this, this blessing from God, from the Father, that you are to carry on the promises of God into the future generations. You stole that from Jacob. Or sorry, you stole that from Esau. Now Esau wants to kill you. Now you run. You run. And so he's about to meet Esau again. His brother that wants to kill him. Literally kill him. So now here's, here's Jacob's conundrum. He's now run away. He's got his flock. He's got his family. He's got an angry father-in-law back there. He's got an angry brother in front of him 
stuck between a, a rock and a hard place. Now Jacob's former ways, his deceptive ways, are now bringing him face to face with his brother. And he has no hope of, his, ex, of escape. He has no hope except for the fact that God is with him. But that does not stop Jacob from going back to his deceitful ways. Jacob's like, okay, I got a plan. I'm going to see my brother. He's kind of mad at me. You know, it's been, I've, I've been gone a few years. Maybe he's over it. So he, this is his plan. Verse 3. Then Jacob sent messengers ahead to his brother, Esau, who was living in the region of Seir in the land of Edom. He told them, give this message to my master, Esau. Humble greetings from your servant, Jacob. I don't know what the tone is, but I'm just going to do this. Until now, I have been living with Uncle Laban. And now, and now I own cattle, donkeys, flocks, and sheep, and goats, and many servants, both men and women. I have sent these messengers to inform my Lord of my coming, hoping that you will be friendly to me. So as he hasn't seen his brother in a while. His brother has just, just wanted to kill him, and then Jacob runs away. Writes this letter, hey, bro, what's up? I got donkeys now. I've just been living with uncle. It's fine. I hope, I hope you're going to greet me friendly. You're going to be friendly to me when I come back. So what happens? Verse 6. After delivering the message, the messengers returned to Jacob and reported, We met your brother Esau, and he is already on his way to meet you with an army of 400 men. Jacob was terrified at the news. He divided this household along with the flocks and herds and camels into two groups. He thought, if Esau meets one group and attacks it, perhaps the other group can escape. So, so Jacob is already like planning and, and trying to uh, figure out a way out. And then, then Jacob prayed. Then Jacob prayed. And how often do we do that? When we're at the end of our rope, when we're at rock bottom, what do you do? You pray. Almost every culture around the world has some form of prayer, whether they know it or not. When you're at the end of yourself, when you've lost your job, you've lost your wife, you've lost your kids, and you just don't know what to do, and you just cry out. This is the first recorded prayer of Jacob. Verse 9, Then Jacob prayed, O God of my father Abraham, and God of my father Isaac. Sorry. O God of my grandfather Abraham and God of my father Isaac. O Lord, you told me. Return to your own land and to your relatives. You promised me. I will treat you kindly. I'm not worthy of all the unfailing love and faithfulness you have shown to me, your servant. When I left home and crossed the Jordan River, I owned nothing except a walking stick. Now my household fills two large camps. Oh Lord, please rescue me from the hand of my brother Esau. I'm afraid that he is coming to attack me, along with my wives and children. But you promised me, I will surely treat you kindly, and I will multiply your descendants until they become as numerous as the sands along the seashore. Too many to count. Jacob's scared. And as Jacob continues, he's recognizing that God is with him. This is... This is a fact. This, I, have to, I have to know this promise. He is with me. My brother, he wants to kill me. And he's, he's increased his dependence upon him. Again, this is the first recorded prayer of Jacob. 
And it represents his growth of his trust in the God who is with him. And how he prays here in these few verses is a good template for us and how we pray. If you're a Christian here, this is, this is for you. If, you, if you. if you don't know God, consider that he's given you access to him. And you can speak to him. And so this is the template for prayer. And, and for a lot of Christians, you know, we think, okay, you know, I don't, I don't pray as much as I should, and I need, I need techniques. There's a lot of good techniques out there. And Christians love to throw out acronyms, like, I'm not discounting this form of prayer, but like ACTS, A-C-T-S, that kind of prayer. Or BLESS, B-L-E-S-S, and each word stands for like, I don't even know. Each letter stands for something, and that's how you pray. And those are, those are good tools to have. I'm creating a new one right now based on this text. It's called ACCR. ACCR. A is for acknowledgement of who God is. C is citing God's words. The other C is for confession. And the fourth letter, which is R, is requests. So ACCR. Beautiful. Beautiful acronym. I'll trademark it. It'll be great. So... A, acknowledgement of who God is. This is, how, this is how Jacob opens his prayer. O God of my grandfather Abraham and God of my father Isaac. He's acknowledging who God is right away. He's addressing God. A, second thing he does, he cites God's words at the beginning of the prayer and at the end. So at the beginning of the prayer, he's citing God's words. Verse 9, O Lord, you told me return to your own land and to your relatives and you promise me, I will treat you kindly. In verse 12, he cites God's words. But you promise me, I will surely treat you kindly, and I will multiply your descendants until they became as numerous as the sands along the seashore. Too many to count. The application there is when we pray, let's pray the Bible. There's a book called the Psalms. Pray the Psalms. As you're reading through the Bible, pray the Bible. Pray God's words. So acknowledging who God is, He's citing God's words at the beginning and the end. And then he's confessing. He's confessing. Verse 10. I am not worthy of all the unfailing love and faithfulness you have shown to me, your servant. When I left home and crossed the Jordan River, I owned nothing except a walking stick. Now my household fills two large camps. Confession. Prayer is already a humble submission that God is in control and we are not. Who are we? Who are we that God is mindful of us? What have we done to deserve the love and the care of the creator of the universe? God simply loves us. Not because we have anything special to offer. We're made in his image, but we're not doing him a favor by going to heaven. We are not amazing. We are not great. We are like what Jacob says, I am not worthy of your unfailing love and faithfulness. I'm not worthy. So A, C, C, R, requests. And then he makes a request, a genuine request. Oh Lord, please rescue me from the hand of my brother Esau. I'm afraid that he is coming to attack me along with my wives and children. Make requests to God, however big and small. It's not like God's like, oh, I don't have time for that. That prayer is way too little. No, he cares about us. He is with us. So we make our requests known. A-C-C-R. 
Brilliant. Verse 13. Jacob stayed where he was for the night. Then he selected these gifts from his possessions to present to his brother Esau. 14,200 female goats, 20 male goats, 200 ewes, 20 rams, 30 female camels with their young, 40 cows, 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys, and 10 male donkeys. He divided these animals into herds and assigned each to different servants. Then he told his servants, go ahead of me with the animals, but keep some distance between the herds. He gave these instructions to the men leading the first group. When my brother Esau meets you, he will ask, whose servants are you? Where are you going? Who owns these animals? You must reply, they belong to your servant Jacob, but they are a gift for his master Esau. Look, he is coming right behind us. Jacob gave the same instructions to the second and third herdsmen, to all who followed behind the herds. You must say the same thing to Esau when you meet him and be sure to say, look, your servant Jacob is right behind us. Jacob thought, I will try to appease him by sending gifts ahead of me. When I see him in person, perhaps he will be friendly to me. So the gifts were sent on ahead and Jacob himself spent that night in the camp. So Jacob is trying to buy time by sending these herds and with gifts. So the first herd will take the animals and say, hey, these are from Jacob. He's right behind us, by the way. He's, he's like, he's coming. And then a second herd will come and say, hey, these are a gift for you. Jacob's coming. He's right behind us. He's coming. He's just trying to buy time. And he spent the night at the camp. Now during the night, Jacob got up and took his two wives, his two servants, two servant wives and his 11 sons and crossed the Jabbok River with them. After taking them to the other side, he sent over all his possessions. This left Jacob all alone in the camp. And a man came and wrestled with him until the dawn began to break. When the man saw that he would not win the match, he touched Jacob's hip and wrenched it out of its socket. Then the man said, let me go for the dawn is breaking. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. What is your name? The man asked. He replied, Jacob. Your name will no longer be Jacob, the man told him. From now on, you'll be called Israel because you have fought with God and with men and have won. So in Hebrew, Jacob's name means deceiver. In the strange encounter, the strange wrestling match, this person renames him Israel. Who is this person who wrestled Jacob? This is a very strange and mysterious story. Jacob was all alone in the camp, and somebody shows us, just starts wrestling with him till the, till the morning. Who is this person? Jacob recognizes this is not just a man, and clearly he doesn't have powers of just a regular person because this person ended up touching his, his hip socket and it disjointed it. Who is this? Please tell me your name, Jacob said. Why do you want to know my name? The man replied. Then he blessed Jacob there. Jacob named the place Peniel, which means face of God. So that's another clue as to who that person was. It was either an angel of God or it was God himself showed up in a form of a human. For he said, I have seen God face to face, yet my life has been spared. The sun was rising as Jacob left Peniel and he was limping because of the injury to his hip. Even today, the people of Israel don't eat the tendon near the hip socket because of what happened that night when the man strained the tendon of Jacob's hip. 
Jacob's new name represents his lifetime of struggling with others. He struggled with his brother in his mother's womb in chapter 25. He, he struggled and wrestled with his father. Chapter 27, he wrestled with his father-in-law, wrestled with his father-in-law, 29 to 31. And now Jacob has wrestled with God. And God would not let him go. God lovingly pursued him to make his character more in line with how God created him. And God may be wrestling with you today. What are your thoughts of God? What are you thinking of that, that holds you back from trusting that he is with you, that he is for you, that he is beside you? And throughout all this wrestling in his life with people, now with God, he finally came to realize the importance that God was with him. And God gave Jacob a new identity. Hey, Jacob used to be physically strong, but now he's spiritually, but he's spiritually weak. And now after wrestling with God, he was, he was weak in body, but strong in spirit. Jacob's going to meet his brother. I'm going to learn about that next week, so stay tuned. But now he can do so without the crazy anxiety, without the, without the deception and need to plan that he's been doing all, all his life. He's a deceiver. He's encountered God. He'd been delivered. And he had this confidence. He's lost his life for the sake of God. We are to lose our life for the sake of finding it. That is true life. In a book in the New Testament, in Matthew chapter 10, verse 39, it says, if you cling to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for me, you will find it. We are to lose our life for God's sake. We are to give our, our passions, our desires to Him. That is true life. Our true life is walking with God. Our true life is being with God. Our true life is putting our faith in God. And God is with us. And as Genesis and the Bible comes to this epic climax in this person named Jesus Christ, God is saying, I'm going to be with you. You will be my people and I will be with your God. And I will be your God. I will be with you. In one of the books in, in, in the New Testament called John, it says the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The word, the word is God. God became flesh, walked among us. 2,000 years ago, Jesus Christ came into the world. God in the flesh to be among his people, to dwell among his people. And by faith, he will dwell in your hearts. And I will close with this verse from Ephesians. Chapter 3, verse 12 to 19. Because of Christ and our faith in him, we can now come boldly and confidently into God's presence. So everything that has separated us from God in the beginning, our rebellion, our sin, God has conquered that and removed it. He became sin who knew no sin. He, he defeated death. He defeated Satan. And he rose from the grave. This is the Christ. This is the God we talk about. Place your faith in him. We continue verse 13 in Ephesians chapter 3. So please don't lose heart because of my trials here. I'm suffering for you, so you should feel honored. When I think of all this, I fall to my knees to, and pray to the Father, the creator of everything in heaven and earth. I pray that from his glorious unlimited resources, he will empower you with inner strength through his spirit. 
then Christ will make his home in your hearts as you trust in him. You catch that? Christ will make his home in your hearts. He will not only dwell beside us and around us, but he will live within us. Your roots will grow down into God's love and keep you strong. May you have the power to understand, as all God's people should, how wide, how long, how high, and how deep his love is. May you experience the love of Christ, though it is too great to understand fully. Then you will be made complete with all the fullness of life and power that comes from God. This is a plea, this is a petition that you are to entrust your life to the God who is with us. He says, I'm with you. What are you going through? Don't do this on your own. Seek me in my word in prayer, ACCR. I'm with you. I have done everything it took to remove your separation from God. Come home, come to me. I am with you. And I will transform you and show you pastures you have never, ever seen. Come home. Amen. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word. I know there was a lot there. Lord, Lord, just help us to filter through what we need to hear, where we are right now, that your glory would be magnified in our lives, in this church and beyond. That people would come to know Jesus and celebrate him above every other thing. In your name we pray. Amen.